and I think it's now my uh, my uh, happy occasion to then turn the uh, our proceedings to the um, uh, to a panel discussion, which I'm going to um, I'm going to be moderating. And the four panelists we've chosen are absolutely uh, stellar. All of them will have a great deal of add to our knowledge of this. And I'm going to give you a brief introduction to each of them. I'm, and I'm going to be introducing them. I'll introduce them now in the order in which they're going to speak. And they are going to be able to fill in um, much uh, and, and provide much more detail to the application of international law. So the first person I'm going to be asking in a minute to speak is Mr. Uh, Assam Yunus, who is the director of the Al Mazan Center for Human Rights in Gaza. He is the uh, Commissioner General of the Palestinian Independent Commission for Human Rights, and he is also the president of the Arab Network for National Human Rights Institutions. And I have dealt with Assam on many occasions and find him to simply be a stellar advocate for, uh, for human rights. Second person uh, to speak will be Hegat Afran, who is the uh, director of Settlement Watch Project for, uh, attached to the Israeli Peace Now movement. Uh, and Hagat is the director, um, and she's widely recognized as Israel's foremost expert on uh, West Bank and East Jerusalem settlements. And she's responsible for monitoring, scrutinizing, and analyzing Israeli uh, construction and planning of settlements in, uh, in the West Bank. Our third panelist today will be Ms. Sahar Francis, um, who, uh, who has been since 2006 the Director General of the uh, Ramallah-based uh, Adamir uh, Prison Support and Human Rights Association, which is a Palestinian NGO providing legal and advocacy support to Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli and Palestinian prisons. And fourth, we're going to be joined by Nadwa uh, Kiswason, uh, who is a Swedish Palestinian, should I also say Dutch uh, lawyer as well, who specializes in international criminal and human rights law. And she has represented uh, Palestinian human rights organization Al-Haq and its partners for the past decade at various institutions, such as at the United Nations, the European Union, as well as at the International Criminal Court. And I believe she's based uh, in The Hague. All four of these people have a very rich uh, history of human rights advocacy, and I'm sure the panel coming up is going to be um, uh, is going to be simply top drawer. You each have roughly 12 minutes, and if, uh, I'm going to ask all the rest of us to um, to close our video and just have only the person on uh, who's speaking to be on the video. If I appear on the screen, uh, the speaker will know that your time is is getting nigh. Uh, so, Sam. Can I uh, ask you to start us off and show us, uh, and, and please talk to us about the issues of, with respect to Gaza? Well, th thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Glenn. And uh, um, yeah, let me first uh, apologize in advance for any uh, inconvenience and stable connections that uh, uh, from my side, uh, uh, due to the cuts of electricity now in the area where I live, it's almost 14 hours of cuts of electricity. So we'll, we'll do my best to manage uh, uh, with that. Uh, well, let me begin by thanking the Balfour Project for organizing this important conference. I especially want to commend the organizers for their choice of the theme of this conference, measuring the distance between international law and the lived reality in the occupied Palestinian territory. It would not be hyperbolic to say the distance is astronomical allow me to illustrate. I mean, for those who don't know Gaza, Gaza is 
very tiny slide alongside the Mediterranean, 360 kilometers, with inhabitants of 2.2 million. 75% uh, uh, um, are refugees. 85% um, of the families are dependent on humanitarian aid provided by different uh, uh, aid agencies uh, in Gaza. And Gaza, as you know, for the last 15 consecutive years under under uh, blockade. And and before I start my uh, uh, presentation, uh, uh, the blockade is not only a collective punishment that's outlawed under international law. There is a process of de-development, as if you are taking Gaza and throw it backward 60 or 70 years, uh, 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 and uh, by doing so, the, the the Israeli occupation forces sieging the future of a whole nation. And uh, um, what exactly, I mean, this is very inherent in the doctrine uh, and the strategy that uh, the, 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 uh, the Israeli government has worked on to transfer Palestinians from a nation to communities. That's why the siege is imposed over Gaza uh, uh, to isolate Gaza from the rest of the occupied territories and Gaza to live its own problems uh, under the blockade, electricity, sewage system, um, access, and, and this stuff. And, and the same thing in Jerusalem with the uh, taxes that are heavily imposed, there are no taxes, and the very discriminatory laws and uh, uh, building licenses, etc. cetera. The, the, the south of the West Bank, uh, you know, set, settlements and this stuff, the same thing also in, in, in the north of the West Bank. Uh, so th this is just uh, uh, the blockade in a nutshell, and we could elaborate more uh, to show how they have controlled the, the geography and the demography, the, the fragmentation that they tried their best to do it uh, uh, in the last 11 days has been uh, proven to be a complete failure, and Palestinians have re, uh, uh, reunited uh, uh, in all levels, uh, on, on the two sides of the, the green uh, line. So it's complete failure. It's very anthropological, very colonialist, very uh, uh, discriminatory, and, and uh, it did not last and will not last. Palestinians are uh, a nation, have rights, uh, and by the way, our main struggle, our main cause is not a state. It's not acceptable to just to summarize and, and, and just to, to link Palestinians uh, only with the state. I mean, Palestinians have rights, and the whole struggle should be a rights-based uh, uh, approach. Uh, right to self-determination, and by default, the state will come, and then the, the right to return. Israel perpetrates violence in Gaza on a daily basis. You probably hear about the violence only when it escalates, namely in the full-scale offensive in 2008-9 and 2012-2014, and the latest in May or also during the Great March of Return protests. What the international media deprives you from hearing about is the stories of that virus. People's lives, uh, who they were, uh, what those who passed away meant to their families. During one of the long nights of Israel's offensive in Gaza in 2014, Israeli Air Forces launched mine missiles at a house in Rafah city, at the time of the attack, my 75-year-old father, my 53-year-old stepmother, my brothers and their wives and children were sleeping in our family home right next to the one that was targeted. The nine missiles obliterated the targeted house and damaged my family home, killing my father, stepmother, and my four 
years old niece. My sisters-in-law and their children were all injured in the attack. The local media reported on the murder. The international media only reported the increase in the death toll in Gaza. Human rights organizations like my own documented the attack on the densely populated neighbor as one potentially violating international uh, humanitarian law and the rights of the victims and survivors. But the survivors who have not seen justice. No soldier, commander or government leader was held accountable for this potential war crime. There was no independent investigation, let alone prosecution. But even these terms sound stale and strange compared to what the experience meant to me. The key word in the occupied territories is accountability. Accountability is being intentionally thrown away, deleted from the order of the day. Uh, and as long as the Israeli troops, Israeli army is not accountable, we have warned and we still warning that the worst is yet to come. During Israel offensive in 2014, over 2,000 Palestinians were killed throughout the course of, of those hostilities. 1,066 people, including 370 children, were killed inside their homes. In similar situations to mine, over 10,200 were wounded. More than uh, 100,000 uh, 100, Palestinians were made homeless. Even these large figures did not trigger action by the international community to activate accountability mechanisms. I must note that the, this failure to enforce international law was only a repetition of the failure to do so after Israel's area offensive in 2009, 2000, 2008, 2009, and 2012. Will this failure persist yet again now after Israel's latest offensive over a few days ago between the 10th and 21st of May in Gaza? The Israeli military killed 253 Palestinians, including 66 children many of them in their homes while they slept without warning. All over Gaza for 12 days, entire families were huddled in hallways and living in kitchen floors because those seemed like the safest places, but nowhere is safe in Gaza. Usually in times of danger, people leave their homes and go for shelters or bunkers. Uh, there's no series in Gaza. So people, when, when in times of the, when, when 150, war jets uh, occupied the, the sky of Gaza, people just grabbed their homes, gathered in the kitchens, and then, as if the safest place in, in, in the building, so the, 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 the kitchen together with the building, uh, 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 in many, many cases, have been, have been attacked. The Israeli military destroyed 1,800 homes and damaged upwards of 14,000 more. 23 hospitals and medical centers were completely or partially destroyed. The only sewage plan was made inoperable. The 12-story tower that housed Al Jazeera and the Associated Press was brought to the ground, which meant that getting information out was made never more difficult. Nearly 60,000 people were made homeless, many still living in appalling humanitarian conditions in makeshift shelters. Israel's unlawful closure in 14 years 14-year collective punishment was tightened, heightened its devastating impacts on social, economic, cultural, and environmental rights for 2 million people in Gaza. The offensive ends and Israel continues its daily forms of violence. These forms are even less visible to the outside world 
There are the stories of this law, rending violations of economic, social, cultural, civil, and political rights that make life so much harder than it has to be. In, 2000, in, in 2016, I was diagnosed with rectal cancer. Due to the Israeli government's closure and blockade policy, which restricts the entry of medicines, medical equipment, and healthcare expertise, as well as Israeli attacks on healthcare facilities. You know, the blockade, again, is not only a collective punishment. There is a process of de-development. De-development is quite clear on the different aspects of the life of the Gazans. Gazans' healthcare sector has been de-developed to a stage where healthcare for cancer and critically ill patients is unavailable in Gaza. My only option was to leave Gaza to get the urgent treatment I needed. Now, to leave Gaza, I need an Israeli exit permit, through which Israel subjected me to a deliberate process of delay. As you may well know, when it comes to cancer and critical illnesses, each single day of, daily, of delay counts against not only the chances of survival, but also the hope for it. Besides the physical pain, I suffered from extreme stress, as did my family and close ones along with me. Through this delay, I had to reschedule my appointment at Augusta Victoria Hospital and Hadassah Hospital in Jerusalem before Israel issued me the permit. But even in doing so, Israel denied the, the chance to have all my family with me. They allowed only my wife. I was denied the family support and 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 uh, any patient, especially cancer patients, need. But this is not the story of only. In 2020, Israeli either rejected or delayed 31% of permit applications to leave Gaza for urgent medical treatment, a relatively high success rate compared to previous years. But still, five patients, include one woman and two children, died after their hospital care was delayed. Their stories likely went unreported, and the psychological violence that their families endured as well. Even worse, there is again no accountability despite the chronic occurrence of these events, despite the norms that are broken under international law, despite our careful advocacy at the international level in particular with European government. However compelling these stories may be, the conditions get worse, not better, and the international community proceeded with its status quo of remarks of concern, but no concrete actions. And Israel's sense of impunity deepens every time the international community fails to hold it to account. The clearest example is the, is the last offensive earlier this month. By the way, in the year 2012, just to, to go in depth into what, is, what does it mean, the blockade that's imposed uh, over Gaza, the, in, in the year, 2000, year 2012, Haaretz newspaper published a summary of what the so-called red line document that was disclosed by the Israeli coordinator of government activities in the Palestinian territories. This document, which was released in 2008, included a calculation of the minimum number of needed calories per person with, without reaching under nutrition as a result of the siege. In this context, there was the calculation of the minimum number of needed calories of basic food stuff for, for every respective age segment that were allowed to be entered into Gaza Strip, as well as specifying the number of needed trucks for transporting the minimum quantities. The calculation was 2,279 
calories per person per day, which includes 1,836 grams of foodstuffs, which means equivalent to 25,755 tons for all the residents of the Gaza Strip. This means that it's only allowed to enter a certain number of trucks carrying the specified quantities of basic foodstuffs for Gaza's residents as based on the calculation. This is the biopolitics. On, the, on May 16th, during the offensive in Gaza, my family and I were putting uh, plates on the table for lunch. The food was still hot and we were about to take our seats when we were informed that we must evacuate our home and leave the neighborhood. Israeli jet fighters were about to bombard a nearby building. My wife, children, and I had our important documents in small bags. We rushed to them and left our homes, our, our house, for uh, relatives. Uh, one, my neighbors did the same, but even, even my relative's house was not considered safe. We were told again to evacuate. And this time, my family and I went to a Shifa hospital as if it's the safest place in Gaza because we thought it was the latest unsafe place to go. During my temporary displacement through this, I was on the phone with a news channel. And I said, the world is now treating international law as toilet papers. I said that as statement of support of Israel's right to self-defense were being sent from many concerns of Europe and elsewhere. I must reiterate that the offensive is only one case of Israel's uh, undeterred, protracted violations of international law. My organization, Al-Mizan Center for Human Rights, has been documenting these violations since the organization established in the year 1999. Through the two decades, as had been the case before, we saw Israel continue to expand the distance between international law and lived realities for the population. I know that I ran out of time. Let me say, uh, uh, just to, to, to end with, the, uh, with this, let me say this. It was in the UK at Essex University where I obtained my qualification in human rights. I was among the first and few Palestinians to gain such a qualification. My study there was funded by the British, by the British government, by your tax money, so that I could help improve the situation of human rights in Palestine. If the UK continues its inaction regarding Israel's violations of human rights, it's contradicting its own goals of supporting any study, wasting your tax money, sabotaging my and other human rights activists, Activity, activists work and even worse becoming complicit in the suffering of Palestinians. So I call on you, the citizens, to challenge that, use your vo voter power, freedom of speech right, and conscious sense of human dignity and solidarity to help this decades-long injustice. Thank you so much. Sam, thank you so much. You packed a lot into the uh, into the 12 minutes. Uh, I'm now going to turn to uh, Heget uh, Afran, and the same thing will apply when you see my face. That's a that's a signal that uh, the time is nigh. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Um, um, I, I would like to to talk a little bit about uh, settlements. As as you all know, um, and as um, um, Michael uh, explained, 
this is one of the biggest violations of, of um, the international law by Israel, but it's also uh, another way of oppression and taking over Palestinian lands and uh, preventing the possibility for a future resolution of our conflict and a future two-state solution. So this is why the issue of settlements is uh, very, very important. And I would like to um, talk about uh, um, trends that are ongoing right now. And for that, I would like to, to share with you a few slides. Um, in, uh, in addition to con continuous construction of, uh, of um, settlements all the time, I think what we are seeing today is a revolution in terms of the infrastructure and the roads. And I want to, I put this map of the West Bank and you can see the, the main road, the old road that goes from so, uh, south to north, uh, going through the main cities. This was the road that also settlers used to take uh, at the beginning of the occupation. But then came the, the Oslo Agreement and Israel um, withdrew uh, from 40% uh, of the West Bank, or at least was supposed to withdraw. And uh, the main roads that also were used by settlers were now in the Palestinian uh, Authority territory. And uh, the government of Rabin um, that was supposed to go to peace, and we had an interim agreement uh, that was supposed to end in the final status agreement by uh, May 99, uh, for this interim time decided to build bypass roads uh, so that settlers will be able to, pass, to bypass Bethlehem or to bypass Hebron or to bypass Ramallah or Nablus. And uh, it was uh, billions of shekels that Israel uh, did. But what it enabled was the development of the settlements. Because you can imagine that if settlers who live in settlements south of Jerusalem in the Gush Etzion area, if they are traveling every day, commuting to Israel uh, through Bethlehem, so it's traffic jams, but it's also the, 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 the sense of fear to, to be in a Palestinian town. So now they have a highway that bypasses all, all those uh, problems. And with that infrastructure, they managed to bring the settlers today in the West Bank to be um, almost uh, half a million or 460,000 uh, uh, settlers in addition to, to the East Jerusalem uh, settlers. What uh, we see that these roads are already packed and in order to develop the settlements more, they need to uh, put more uh, into uh, infrastructure. And that's what the government of Israel has been doing in the last few years. And it was under the radar and not uh, too many people uh, know about it, that Israel put billions of shekels to build new roads. And that, that's a map that only puts uh, um, on one map some of those roads that are uh, could be re revolutionary in terms of the development of settlements. I'm talking about the doubling of, of the Tunnels Road, uh, uh, bypassing Bethlehem. I'm talking about uh, Kalandia underpass, which is uh, another route for, for settlers to drive into Israel without going through the uh, um, traffic jams of Jerusalem, etc., etc. And I think it's something that we overlooked for many years. I want also to focus about 
on, on one of the roads that is now being promoted, and I hope we will be able to stop it, that the government is saying that it's planned for the Palestinians, and it's a road uh, in uh, between Al-Azariah and uh, Azarim. Um, this is a map of the center of the West Bank, uh, Jerusalem, and Maale Adumim settlement in the end. Uh, uh, and when you you today all Palestinian traffic in West Bank, if they want to drive from Bethlehem to Ramallah, they need to bypass uh, East Jerusalem from the east, and the road goes to El Azariah, and then they need to turn east uh, near Maale Adumim, and then climb up to Ramallah. Now, what the government of Israel is planning is to make a shortcut that will allow them to go uh, on this um, uh, road in black uh, uh, to go and bypass it without the need to go through Maale Adumim. So what's the problem with that? The problem is that is that the, the planned road will, uh, as soon as it is going to be built, uh, the old road for Palestinians will be blocked. And all this red area east of East Jerusalem is going to be closed for Palestinian movement. And this is around 2% of the West Bank that Israel is uh, planning to, to close down for Palestinians. And the checkpoint today for settlers in Maale Adumim will uh, be removed. They will be free to go in and out. And Israel will be able to claim that the Palestinians have their own transportation continuity rather than um, territorial continuity and to build in the heart of the West Bank another settlement like uh, Iwan. So that's a very dangerous development that I think uh, we should all uh, look into. Another very important development of recent years is those uh, new farm settlements, uh, agriculture farms uh, the, with uh, very little investment, with very few people the settlers are taking over a huge amount of land. They established 40 of them already in uh, the last few years. And they, and they uh, control a huge amount of land. They go out uh, with, uh, with their sheep and whatever Palestinian uh, wants to go close, they will kick them out, uh, threaten them out or call the, the army to do it. And this way they took over a lot of land. So it's another very, um, problematic development that is going on. I wanted also to take advantage of the time that I have um, in order to, to speak about things that are happening now in Jerusalem. And I think it is connected to many of the things that uh, Michael Link uh, talked about. This is a map of, of uh, the old city area. And you can see um, uh, all the brown areas are the Palestinian neighborhoods around the old city. And the red dots are settlements that uh, Israeli settlers managed to take. It's houses that they uh, build, uh, or actually they managed to take over Palestinian houses and uh, uh, bring in settlers instead uh, in many, many ways. And uh, as you all uh, heard uh, in recent uh, weeks, in Sheikh Jarrah, we have a huge settlement coming up and in Batan al-Hawa in the same story. And I want us to, to understand a little bit what, what is at stake and what, what is happening and how it works or how it looks like. This is a settlement in the heart of the Palestinian uh, uh, neighborhood. It's one house with a flag 
and guards on top of it. And whenever a settler child goes to school, he is escorted by guards that are funded by the Israeli uh, taxpayer. This picture was taken in Batan El Hawa in Silwan, south of the old city. This is the, the widest street in, in Batan El Hawa. All the people you see in the picture are under current uh, immediate threat of being evicted. All of them have court cases ongoing uh, with pile of, of uh, papers that settlers are suing them out. Um, this is a picture of Batan El Hawa. Almost all of the houses you see are under threat. The settlers managed to take these three homes and others are uh, pending. Uh, this is about 700 people. Here, the Sheikh Jarrah, you can see all the blue houses that are already taken by settlers. Uh, and the reds are ones that are in courts pending, um, um, waiting for, for uh, um, um, to be to, to, to the final decision of the court. Here is how it looks like uh, today. The, area and the settlers what they want to do is to take over all this area knock down the houses as soon as they complete the eviction or the displacement of the Palestinians here and to build 300 units for settlers um, I think it's uh, the first time uh, that Israel is um, going to have a mass displacement of Palestinians since 67 we took a lot of land of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. One third of the land was confiscated for uh, public use and then was, uh, uh, settlements were built on it. But we never took the land uh, and kicked out the Palestinians from their house in order to build our settlements. And now we are having, not in large scale, we had a house here and there. Now we're talking about uh, two or, or three hundred people in Sheikh Jarrah and 700 people in, in Silwan. What is the basis of that is the discriminatory law. And for that, we need to go uh, in two minutes to back to 48. As you know, in 1948, there was a war here. And all the red dots that you see in this map are, are Palestinian villages and towns that uh, were left behind. The, the, the Palestinians were forced out. And Israel decided uh, by law that we will make use of all these properties for the benefit of Israel and the land was confiscated and they cannot return or give, take back their properties. In Jerusalem, the same. We had Palestinian neighborhoods that uh, were evicted. About 35,000 Palestinians were kicked out and a very small uh, community of, of Jews um, in, in Sheikh Jarrah and in the old city, around 2,000 Jews also lost their properties in, in that war, and they all got alternative uh, housing in uh, West Jerusalem and citizenship in Israel, while the Palestinians went uh, nowhere and went, went or had no place to go and became refugees. Israel annexed the um, East Jerusalem and made it officially part of Israel in 1967, and decided a, a few years later to legislate a law that says that Jews can return to uh, the houses that they lost in 48. So this is what the, the settlers are doing. They managed to take possession of the original owners from before 48, and then to sue 
the Palestinians out based on the ownership for before 48, while Palestinians, of course, cannot do that in West Jerusalem or in Israel at large. So we, we see the discrimination very, very clearly, and we can start to understand why uh, this um, eruption of violence uh, started now uh, in such a, uh, a strong uh, manner. Um, also, uh, I wanted to also to say um, it is not a legal matter, although the government is uh, saying that it's a legal matter between two sides that are fighting over ownership. It's a political matter that is done through legal means and the legal means are discriminatory and the government can stop it. And I would like to give you the two ways the government can uh, stop it. Right now, the court asked the, the government or the attorney general to uh, give his opinion in the issue of, of those cases of eviction uh, in Sheikh Jarrah and Batan El Hawa, and the government is now uh, supposed to give its answer. And if the government is going to say it's fine to evict or to displace hundreds of people and replace them with settlers, then it is official policy of the Israeli government. But if they take another stand, the court will surely uh, um, uh, agree to, to prevent the eviction. And another way is to confiscate the land from the settlers. If we are, were able to confiscate 23,000 dunams from Palestinians and give it to settlers or to Israelis, we can uh, confiscate 25 dunams from settlers and give it to Palestinians. And I think the whole discourse of rights um, by the international law is very relevant to uh, ensure or secure the rights of housing of those Palestinians who were living there for decades and in good faith they went into those houses. Nobody, they never stole, they are not squatters and they're supposed to be uh, allowed to stay in their homes while the original owners, uh, that the settlers managed to take over, they can be compensated. Michael, you're muted. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I was muted. I was just looking at the chat box to look at all of the uh, uh, superlatives that are coming in for your presentation on the maps. So well done. I'll now turn it over to Sahara. Uh, all yours. Hello, uh, and uh, allow me first to thank the organizers for such an interesting uh, panel. And to thank you, Professor Lenk, for the legal introduction, because honestly, this is uh, uh, the theory that uh, really our um, uh, discussions and interventions would fit into perfectly in how to really uh, give the picture of how Israel as a state were manipulating and using international law and all legal means in order to uh, uh, oppress more, to keep the control over the Palestinians for decades and decades. And um, like it's very short time in order to brief about the uh, subject of the Palestinian children under the military system uh, and in general the imprisonment and how actually the, uh, the Israeli occupation were using imprisonment in order 
to uh, uh, keep this control and uh, uh, oppression against Palestinians in illegal way and how they justified all the practices like torture and other uh, uh, grave violations against prisoners and detainees uh, and uh, in the name of the law and by a legal system, the military uh, uh, system, of course, that was immediately implemented uh, after the occupation. Uh, so uh, just to, uh, uh, to summarize what was going on lately in the last uh, month and uh, a half, actually since the uh, 13th of April, when all the demonstrations and the clashes started in the middle of Ramadan, uh, inside uh, East Jerusalem and then uh, in Sheikh Jarrah and then spread to inside Israel to the West Bank and of course in the time of the war against Gaza. In this period Israel uh, arrested more than 2,650 uh, Palestinians. In East Jerusalem alone it was around 550 Palestinians. Of course all these figures including children. There's no specific, uh, till now, we don't have a very accurate statistics about how many of those were uh, just children. Uh, and uh, inside 48, just in the last two days, there were an intensive campaign of uh, mass arrests that 250 people were arrested for uh, so far in the last two days. Uh, and of course, there's a uh, decision by the, uh, uh, the state to submit charges against all these uh, detainees based on the claim that they were uh, uh, like uh, attacking uh, police or uh, violent in the demonstrations and all charges are uh, uh, covered with the ideological uh, uh, argument that it was motivated by uh, racist and uh, ideological uh, means, where we can find that even in this mass arrest, there is a discrimination because we also, how Israeli uh, Jewish extremists, sometimes settlers who were coming to the uh, inside Israel in the uh, cities like Haifa, Lidl, Ramli, and other cities, and uh, also attacking Palestinians, the level of arrest within the Israelis is not, uh, Israeli Jews, of course, is not in the same uh, uh, level. Uh, in these uh, mass arrests, there's lots of violence, there's lots of attacks, and we are documenting uh, tens of cases where people are injured while being arrested because the police would use lots of violence. In some cases, people were hospitalized because of these uh, injuries and including children that later, like they were, uh, uh, most of the children who were arrested and uh, brutally attacked in these uh, campaigns were released after a couple of hours or uh, within a couple of days without being charged, but of course under conditions to be under house arrest sometimes or paying a bell, very high uh, uh, bells. Currently uh, there is, and of course in this period, the level of administrative uh, detention arresting, and this is of course a British heritage, uh, the use of administrative 
uh, detention, uh, there was a significant increase in issuing administrative detention orders in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. There were four cases in East Jerusalem because usually they don't use administrative detention very uh, often in East Jerusalem, but this round four people were sent for administrative detention. In the West Bank, uh, 84 people were uh, arrested under administrative detention, including actually two children. So currently there's four children held under administrative detention. Later, I would uh, explain more about the policy of administrative detention against children and specifically mentioning the case of Amal Nakhli, the Palestinian boy whose uh, detention was even uh, uh, in extended for the second time under administrative detention. Currently, in total, there's around 160 uh, minors Palestinian juveniles arrested in the Israeli uh, prisons. Of course, all of them are held in prisons inside Israel. Uh, the only prison that is located physically in the West Bank is Ofer, uh, but uh, Israel treats it as part of uh, Jerusalem uh, uh, area, so they impose on the families to get security permits in order to be enabled to reach offer. Uh, this is by itself uh, transferring the detainees into the state is a violation for the international law. But if we uh, uh, review all the policies and the laws that these boys, these children would be subjected to, it's uh, either the civil system inside uh, uh, that is uh, uh, like applicable in East Jerusalem for uh, those who lives in Jerusalem or the military system that applies uh, uh, on the West Bank. I will not cover what's going on in uh, 48 areas. Maybe we can leave it for the uh, Q&A, but in order to highlight the discriminatory practices, uh, even in the system itself, of course, there's a huge difference in uh, the between the military courts and the uh, civil courts. And it should be highlighted that any uh, uh, Israel so far up till uh, 2012, actually, were not implementing any protections for Palestinian children in the uh, military justice system, even uh, defining a child up to that year was 16 years old and not 18 years old. Although in, 20, uh, in 2010, they uh, invented the military courts for juveniles, but this court definitely is not uh, uh, respecting all the measures that the international treaty, the convention for the protection of the children is uh, talking about. So lots of rights actually is not uh, respected and violates the international standards of a fair trial. Juveniles could be interrogated uh, in Arabic, but in some cases the uh, uh, testimony, the confession is written in Hebrew, or even if it's written in Arabic, we don't have, there's no obligation when it's considered a security case to uh, 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 like photograph the interrogation sessions, which means we don't know what's going on in the interrogation with these juveniles in real time. While according to the Israeli law, the uh, uh, criminal code, it's a must that you cannot interrogate a child overnight. You cannot interrogate a child without the presence of his 
uh, one of his parents, you have to uh, take pictures and audio or video tape the interrogation and so on. And uh, there was court decisions, even in security cases against uh, uh, Jewish settlers boys, those who were involved in the case of burning the Dawabshi family, that the court decided to cancel the confessions because of the use of torture. This has never happened in the case of Palestinian juveniles. Of course, the opposite, uh, 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 the uh, Israeli uh, uh, military courts or the military governor by changing the laws or even inside Israel, when they changed the Israeli criminal code in relation to some of the crimes in the case, because of the case of Ahmad Manasra, because Ahmad Manasra was arrested uh, and charged with uh, attempt of killing, and he was less than 14, and according to the Israeli law, he wasn't supposed to be kept in detention till the end of the trial. So because of his case, the whole law was changed in order to give this opportunity that they can keep a Palestinian child uh, uh, in detention till the end of the uh, trial. Later on, he was convicted and sentenced for 12 years and a half. There's lots of examples uh, from the legal system that we can bring to argue about this discrimination policy, but I would also give some attention to the uh, real conditions of these children held under uh, detention in the Israeli prisons. I, as I said, they all are uh, inside the state of Israel and in, uh, in these uh, one year and a half, uh, uh, even more, because of the spread of the COVID, of course, all these uh, uh, children were banned uh, uh, family visits because of the uh, coronavirus spread. And especially even now, when uh, the situation in Israel is much better, uh, families from the West Bank, because they didn't get the vaccine, they are not allowed to be uh, uh, entering to visit their children. And we had Palestinian and Israeli NGOs, we had to petition the Israeli High Court in order to guarantee a phone call for the Palestinian children to be able to call their families instead of the family visits. So once a month or in two weeks, the uh, Palestinian children would get, because usually Palestinian prisoners are not allowed to get family visits, uh, sorry, are not allowed to get phone calls while under detention in the Israeli prisons. So the exception was just made for the Palestinian uh, juveniles. Of course, uh, uh, now all the juveniles uh, uh, in these uh, days face uh, lots of harassment, uh, collective punishments when it comes for restrictions on their ability to go out for recreation because there is claims, for example, that they were committing violations for the prison rules, the health conditions inside their cells, like in a Damun prison, for example. This uh, prison is very old and uh, uh, the, the building itself is not suitable for uh, being uh, a prison having uh, uh, children and it was supposed to be shut down, but they keep use it as, as a prison. Of course, there's no special education, no special rehabilitation offered for uh, these children. The imprisonment would be the most used sentence. And uh, 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 this is also uh, a violation and this discriminatory 
uh, policy if we compare it with the Israeli system where rehabilitation and psychological social uh, support would be the uh, uh, most common practice by uh, the courts and uh, not the real uh, custodial imprisonment. In the last uh, couple of uh, days, we reported, uh, as I said, very severe uh, uh, attacks and harassment against uh, some of the children and uh, four of the children, three actually in the last a, a couple of weeks were uh, sent to administrative detention, but Amal Nakhli was actually the Palestinian boy from Ramallah, he's 17 years old, was arrested in the beginning of the year, in January actually, and he was sent for administrative detention. The uniqueness in the case of Amal that Amal suffers from a very a serious illness in, uh, uh, and he's under a very uh, serious threat. Amal has a problem in his um, myasthenia gravis, it's called, and uh, this has caused his immune system to be very weak and any uh, uh, effect by any virus could be a very uh, serious threat to his life, especially after uh, the COVID spread. And still, Amal was sent for, uh, at the beginning, six months administrative detention because they claimed they have secret uh, information against him. We were expecting, after uh, uh, reducing the order to be four months, that he would be released. But unfortunately, his detention was extended for another four months. And Amal, in the same time, because he was arrested in November 2020, charged with throwing stones, and then we managed to release him because of health condition uh, under bail uh, uh, till the end of the trial. So two months after, he was re-arrested and sent for administrative detention. So currently, he's under administrative detention, and in the same time, he's facing a trial. I would end just by saying that the issue of the prisoners and all the associated practices on the level of torture viol and other violations that uh, uh, some of them definitely arbitrary detention transfer amounts to war crimes. So beside the legal work that the international organizations or local Palestinian and Israeli organizations are doing, I think there is an, a, a, a chance, especially now after all what we were getting through in the last month, that we have to put more pressure, uh, uh, diplomatic pressure and public pressure on the state of Israel in order really to seek the accountability that uh, uh, we need in order to uh, uh, make them respect their uh, uh, responsibilities under international law and stop all these violations, definitely stopping the occupation. Like after hearing Professor Lenk and his analysis about this prolonged occupation, I don't think that we can allow that this, this occupation continues more. And definitely with what Hagit was describing about the land control and the uh, uh, current eviction of hundreds of Palestinians, this is another Nakba and this is what caused all the uh, 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 latest demonstrations. Thank you. Thank you, Sahar, very much for that. Um, a, a great overview of a very uh, of a very tough uh, topic to want to listen to. 
Um, I can now turn to uh, uh, to Nada. It's all yours uh, for the next 12 minutes, and again, you'll see me come up as your time is is running short. Um, please take. Thank you, uh, Michael, and thank you to the Balfour Project for organizing this important conference. I'm invited to present on accountability, and I will do so in my capacity as legal counsel for Palestinian victims before the International Criminal Court. I will focus in my presentation on the recent escalation of violence, guarantees of non-discrimination in the application of the law, and the UK's position on the situation in Palestine at the International Criminal Court. In recent weeks, people in governments from every corner of the world have witnessed the subjugation of Palestinians. It appears from the information available to us that the bombing of the locked-in Palestinian population in the Gaza Strip violated cardinal rules of the laws of armed conflict, such as the principles of precaution, proportionality, and distinction between civilians and combatants. Customary international law, which is binding on Israel and Palestinian armed groups, prohibits attacks that result in incidental loss of civilian life and damage to civilian objects, where it is excessive to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. Such concrete and direct military advantage has not been offered by Israel for its attacks on, for example, multi-story residential buildings, one of which housed international media offices of the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. The bombing of the Gaza Strip was preceded by raids on the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the attempted forced eviction of refugee families from their homes in East Jerusalem. The attempted displacement of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, which coincided with Nakba Day, brought back painful memories of the mass expulsion of Palestinians in 1948 and 1967. The escalation of violence that grabbed the world's attention in the recent weeks compelled many to revise the narrative of an even-handed conflict and a dispute over borders a narrative that has been fed to people in Europe over several generations. It also reinvigorated calls for accountability. UN Special Rapporteur Link recently described accountability in a report to the United Nations as, quote, the institutional check on the exercise of public and private power on behalf of the common good and an indispensable component of the rule of law. And as illuminated in that report, accountability encompasses countermeasures such as financial sanctions and armed embargoes. For the hundreds of Palestinians that I have had the privilege to represent in a recent proceeding before the International Criminal Court, the term accountability means just retribution, truth-telling, and reparation. For them, it is a matter of holding perpetrators criminally responsible for war crimes and crimes against humanity, crimes that the international community has agreed are heinous and therefore concern every state 
and must be punished. Palestinian victims are rightfully unapologetic in their call for justice. They seek what others take for granted, namely the non-discriminatory application of the law. If you were robbed of your belonging, kicked out of your home, and strangers took it over, your initial response would rightly be to contact the police and to see the culprit apprehended and tried and for your home to be restored. If your siblings were murdered, you would not rest until the murderer was put behind bars. And if police tortured and detained your children, you would sue the state and demand a change of laws and overhaul of police procedures. The United Kingdom is a founding member of the International Criminal Court. It espouses human rights, justice, and the rule of law. But these commitments ring hollow when applied selectively. And the United Kingdom's stance on the ICC investigation in Palestine shows that the United Kingdom makes an exception for Palestinians. 